Hello and welcome to the Wind Thief Tat. My guest this week is Alex Fafega. Alex is a creative technologist who works with Nike, Uber, the BBC and the NHS to explore, imagine and prototype future-forward creative concepts for human-centred technology. Exactly what that means you'll discover during our chat. Alex is also a lecturer on artificial intelligence at the University of Arts London and he's one of the Financial Times' top 100 black and minority ethnic leaders in technology. Our conversation begins with the wrongful arrest which led him down his current professional path. We talk about whether Alex's job title of creative technologist really is an oxymoron or not. And we get stuck into the fascinating subject of AI and creativity, and whether computers will ever be able to have ideas like humans do. Alex is the youngest person to join me on the Wind Thieved Hat so far, and he's a super interesting bloke. Have you ever wondered why digital voice assistants always have female names? Siri, Alexa, Cortana? Alex has. Sit back, make yourself comfortable, and enjoy episode 12 of the Wind Thieved Hat. Good afternoon, Alex. Hey, Richard. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing. I'm, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, thank you for having me on the um, podcast. Um, yeah, I'm just like chilling in bed and got this macchiato, if that's how you pronounce it. And um, yeah, I'm interested to like get into a conversation. Well, thanks very much for coming. Um, I thought we'd begin uh, with um, a three-word statement that's in your email signature. And it sim- simply says... I make stuff. So I thought a good way to kick off would be to, to talk to you a little bit about the kind of stuff you make and why you make it. So I'm grateful that that's something that you picked up. Um, the reason why I said I make stuff is that I felt very uncomfortable. Like, you know, if I think of my traditional practice, you know, the, the, the sort of thing that I, I say or I interchange a lot of the times is I ever use, describe my title as a creative technologist or some days I say creative coder some days I just write design and code um, but I feel like sometimes you know um, I know for me that I'm interested in making loads of different things and that necessarily doesn't maybe stick to one discipline but I yeah. just understand that you know the way how we capture information we categorize things and so we're like okay hi I make stuff okay what does that mean I'm a creative technologist that's even confusing what did that mean and also I just like always like to say I make stuff and yeah so for me stuff means it can be anything like you know when one day make a, a bed one day make a chair one day make a table one day make a chatbot one day make an art piece one day make whatever I think for me I'm just literally at that stage in my life where I don't feel like I necessarily need to be boxed to one thing and I just feel like I can just create whatever my mind allows me to create so I think I'm very much in that that sort of space and I live in my own bubble which allows me to sort of do that and on your um, I think it's on your website uh, creativetechish.wtf um, you, you describe yourself as a South London kid from the ends who wanted to be a footballer or a film director so I was curious to find out a little bit about um, what life was like as a South London kid from the ends um, so yeah, South London. Um, I grew up in Peckham before Peckham became, you know, the trendy Peckham that it is now. Um, it was interesting because a lot of the stuff I do now, I, we were never exposed to it. Right. You know, a lot of our, you know, if you're growing up in Peckham, you know, um, I think a lot of our thinking was very narrow and very small in terms of maybe thinking what we could do and what we could be. Yeah. Um, there's always that like saying that most people find football, find music as the way to get out of the ends. Um, yeah. That as that term, but I think it's you know when you think of football, you think of music. You you kind of see people who look like yourself doing those things, and yeah. like you know you see black footballers, you see black musicians, and you know people were necessarily like you know making you know you also think about money because of you come from a low-income background where you may have seen families you know struggle stuff or you've seen some of your friends necessarily like go down different paths necessary to like you know make money through you know illegal means but have that entrepreneurial energy which maybe they just need a space to sort of be you know nutrition 
Um, you know, I'm six foot four. Um, I was always like physically well built. So for me, it was like, yeah, I could play football. You know, I was fast. Yeah. I was strong. Um, so I played football to a decent level. Um, played it to like youth team level, professional um, clubs. Um, didn't get anything further than that. So I didn't really like maybe pursue it anymore. I could have pursued it more, but I've also seen friends who's like, spent their time you know pursuing this journey of football and football is a roller coaster journey you know sure the average footballer career is like 10 years yeah and so you gotta make that 10 years sweet yeah and and possible and you know you gotta make sure that you've got those things in place and you know i i didn't really maybe feel like or believed or i kind of had like love for other stuff but film direction um i also like was this confused kid in school so i picked a number of subjects. I remember the three subjects I picked when it came to like, you know, year 10, year 11, when you have to write your BTEC and GCSEs. I, my BTEC was business, because I just picked that because I was like, oh, yeah, business. But the two things I cared about most was drama and then um, physical education, PE. But that was like, yeah. those are my two GCSEs. So I cared about those two yeah. more. But in my head, it was like, okay, I see where this path takes me. You know, drama, I was like, you know what? I can be an actor or... But I liked the more film direction path. I liked the whole concept of shaping realities and bringing that to life. And yeah. with film, film is a really interesting way of telling stories and how you capture that. So I was interested really about taking that further or writing and those type of stuff and like maybe facilitating other um, talented people to like bring their things to life. Um, so I actually pursued performing arts all the way to like college and then I never really like pushed on it anymore. I think I just fell in love with the whole um, I also got kicked out of college as well, so I went to go do an apprenticeship in like digital design, and that kind of okay. opened up the door to those things that I I do now. It was actually an IT apprenticeship that I kind of shaped into a digital design apprenticeship because right. I really didn't know anything about computers, okay. but I knew how to design stuff. So right. yeah, it's funny, yeah, knowing uh, what I do so far about your work ethic I'm surprised they kicked you out of college what, what did they kick you out of college for oh, it's a bit of a techie one uh, a, I kind of got arrested on the night of my um, performance um, which is a really interesting story so there was someone I was like going out with at the time and we was in King's Cross and we had I had my sort of like performing arts performance or something like that drive. I just felt like just um, A level when I was going to sixth form at the time it was called St Paul's in like Sunbury it's like super far it's like past Kingston like really far but I was, right. playing for, I was playing for a football club and that was necessarily where their youth team players go to study okay um, and you know for most footballers you know the education system encourages footballers to necessarily go do like B-Tech sports science and things where for me um, I was very interested in like doing uh, you know, A levels or making sure that my my options were very broad because that was kind of one of the things that you you know always told about football. You need a backup plan and stuff. So, but despite having this conversation, like a police officer, sort of came up to us and was like, "Oh, you smell of weed," and I was like, "Oh, I don't actually, I don't smoke weed," and the police officer tried to touch me, and I was like, "Please don't touch me." And the police officer was like, oh, I'm going to call backup. And I thought he was going to just call backup for, like, necessary, like, like just having, like, more, like, people, like, just to, like, you know, search me and stuff like that. Yeah. I ended up getting arrested and um, I got a caution for disturbing the public peace. I can honestly say that I didn't really disturb the public peace. Um, I literally just said to the police officer, don't touch me because, you know, growing up in Peckham, the whole sort of police maybe being part of your life is a, it's a thing and... If you're smart enough, you know how to necessarily don't swear at police officers, don't be rude, don't necessarily aggregate them, and your maybe search process will be necessarily simple and not as thorough as somebody else who goes sure. rigorous and gets angry at police officers. And so, you know, I also applied that same model, but I was visibly annoyed because of the whole term of that I smoked like I smoked weed. Um, um, I have no issue with weed, but I don't smoke it, so... yeah. Um, I was really triggered. Um, so it was so kind got, of spurious grounds to stop you in the first place. Yeah, yeah. but you know, I'm six foot four. I wasn't six foot four at that time. Just like eight years ago. But but yeah, that's what necessarily actually happened on the night of that performance. So I came out the next day and I wasn't there for the performance. You've messed up everything for your class wow. and group. And so they basically say to you, you can't. There's nothing you can do. You got to do the year again. 
you know, and, and it was quite unfortunate. Uh, but that was what led to their apprenticeship. Yeah, because I, I guess so, a, lot, a lot of people could and have been derailed by experiences like that. I was angry. I was yeah. angry. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I was angry because um, for me it was like, I, I have, I've had to be a work ethic because I, you know, I grew up in a very interesting setup where um, regarding like family and stuff like that. And yeah, and so for me, my whole, my whole energy to sort of life was, oh yeah, you have to pour these things down, you have to make these plans and then you have to like work hard and like, okay, you want to do this thing? Okay, let's do this thing. So I never like second doubted myself. I literally just had this fury of I'm going to take every opportunity as it comes and I'm going to make the most of it. If you give me, give me a leaf, I'm going to take the whole branch or something like that. Like whatever, I don't even know if that analogy makes sense, but literally <laughs> that was, that's always been the thought process in my head. Um, yeah. So let, let's, let's sort of spool forward a bit. And yeah. then, uh, uh, you, you, you've got one of those roles that I imagine is quite difficult to explain to taxi drivers and, uh, and people you meet in bars, but you describe yourself as a, as a creative technologist. Yeah. Um, officially. Yeah. As well as somebody who makes stuff. And and the, 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 these two words, creative and technology. Yeah. I think probably to a lot of people listening, might feel a bit like a, a sort of contradiction in terms, a bit of an oxymoron. But I think that's just like society's perception of, of those things. I would say that, um, you know, the whole term creative technologies came from the advertising sector and it was based on this notion of, you know, you are either creative or you're uh, technical and I you know personally for me I see code as a creative tool as a creative component I don't necessarily see code as like I'm technical I'm not creative I embody both of them and I see code as one of my toolkits so the other toolkits I necessarily have in my arsenal like design like filming like you know editing the video I once made a research video for a project for a local government authority I was like yeah I'm going to film I watched videos on how to film. Okay, I filmed, and then I edited the film, and yeah. I made the film, and I was like, okay, I've learned more, I've learned this, I need to improve. I once made music with my friends. That's literally how the business started, because we were yeah. really interested in music. So, like, for me, um, I'm not, you know, I never, like, hold on to these labels. I just literally want to pick up skills, and if those skills can be added to my toolkit, I can necessarily make stuff. You know, there might be some things I may be way better at, and some things I need to improve on, but... For me, it's like I'm just, I embrace necessarily everything. So I think when people ask me that real of a creative technologist, I, I just say that I try to sort of leverage technologies in really creative and novel ways that haven't been necessarily done before to, to show the, you know, creative, I don't know, value of the technology itself and this type of stuff. But yeah, it's very hard to describe Mm. my stuff and that's why I just normally label it to the I make stuff <laughs> yeah. and we'll talk about um, some of the projects uh, shortly that you've worked on but it, 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 there's a bigger sort of cultural issue isn't there that um, I think and it probably flows from the education system mm. that people are generally pushed towards the arts yeah. or, or towards technology and yeah. there's a sort of lack of recognition that, that, that um, both um, have a sort of symbiotic relationship with each other, and when one thinks back to um, you know uh, some of the greatest and most inspirational minds who've walked this planet, people like Leonardo da Vinci, mm. who, were, who were very free to, particularly in the mm. Renaissance, to, to roam around different mm. subjects, to, but, to embrace both science and creativity. But I think in the time of the Enlightenment, and, and, and talk about the Renaissance, to be a polymath was something that was praised. You know, Leonardo da Vinci was obviously funded and, you know, and allowed for his creativity to sort of be explored in those things. And I think in the Industrial Revolution, this specialisation of roles became a thing. And, you know, and, and, and if you think of the education system, we have the sort of ranking, you know, system, which is emphasis on the ranking on the league tables and stuff. It's more on the traditional English science maths results rather than the arts results. If you look at the university lead tables, creative universities will always be in the lower yeah. parts because that's just their ranking. They're no, you know, they don't have the same courses that Oxford has. However, they also have very equally talented people as um, um, places like Oxford or like in Cambridge. But you, you can see now, you know, like I mentioned to you before we started this podcast, you know, I'm now a lecturer at the University of Arts 
London Creative Computing Institute, and that's an art school who has set up a, you know, a creative computing institute, you know, to necessarily facilitate those creators of the future who engage in computational methods and computational techniques to further enhance their practice. You know, I teach on the diploma, and that diploma is actually arts students, design students, sculpture students, whatever, you know, illustration, animation students who are like, I want to add computational methods to my practice because I believe it will take me to the next level. I believe it will give me a different edge. Or well, I'm just really interested in exploring this stuff. And they've decided to add an extra year to their study to do these things. So there's, there's a desire mm. for this stuff. Mm. And I think you just need more opportunities. There just needs to be more courses that teachers on these things. What does the arts allow us to do? It allows us to be critical. It allows us to be evaluative. It allows us to be emotional. It allows us to be empathetic. There's so much like inter- intrapersonal skills that the creative you know, process or the arts allows us to necessarily be in touch with. And you know, you strip that away, you're stripping the humanistic things Mm. of humanistic stuff of the of the human you're making them a specialized robot that just mm. necessarily goes every day chance numbers leaves you know and, and and so for me i try to encourage the best of both worlds and like embrace all of those things in in, in that process i suppose also uh, a, a ground for optimism is is that uh, it's now now information is much more accessible mm. so you know when i when i was a student which is um which was before the internet uh, you, sure, you could go to libraries and stuff, but but now, as you were saying at the start of our conversation, you can watch a YouTube video to learn how to make a film. Or yeah, the, 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 the the skills are out there um, to be discovered, which is um, which is a good thing, I think. So, um, Kamuzi, which is uh, your uh, you're the co-founder of Kamuzi, a design and invention studio. You, the, at the core of your mission is to leverage emerging technologies to build products and services for positive human interaction. And uh, that, that very much seems to be a theme of the projects that, that, yeah. that you have. The sort of execution of them might be quite different, but they are all about improving, making a, a substantive and meaningful difference yeah, to people's exactly. lives. Yeah, it's interesting. I know we we either use that line, or I think we used that line more, but I think we started using like prototyping, what do you say, creative concepts for human-centered technology. It's interesting because right. I think both, I think that's also really cool as well. Um, positive interaction. Um, it's interesting um, because when we first started, we started out of uni, we were young and we're still young, but we were younger and um, we just had skills. We were like, yeah, let's make money out of stuff. And that was our goal, was like make money to survive. Um, as you become more mature and you become more knowledgeable, you explore the world and examine the world. I tend to be the person out of, you know, I co-founded community with Richard and Akil, they're my co-founders, and I always tended to be the one who was like, oh, I'm interested in this thing. Hey, guys, what do you think we should do? Can we necessarily incorporate this thinking into our work? And um, uh, I then, you know, did a master's, and, you know, I began to think about the world. You know, I got introduced to the world of, like, speculative fiction, and speculative fiction right. is really, a, or another term is design fiction, but it's necessarily about using design to sort of act as a critical tool um, in regards to critiquing, you know, um, the social, cultural and ethical implications of emerging technologies and trends. And it's like, it came from this whole world of Royal College of Art and um, it's trickled down across, like, you know, many forms of design right now. You have that speculative design, which is very avant-garde and very futuristic stuff. You have speculative design, which can also be consider Black Mirror, for example, in terms of how Black Mirror does stuff, or they're like different pockets and stuff. And, and, and so for me, it was like one of the, you know, I was like, okay, I'm interested in using design as a critical tool. Um, but I was also aware that, you know, one of the things about maybe design fiction is that it does have this, you know, initially started off with an anti-capitalistic agenda. And when I was in there and I was studying this tool or this discipline, I was like, I need to make money I'm from from ends and like, you know. And so for me I had this interesting thing of like how can I work with companies and how can we when we when we build these things, all of this design fiction, all this critical design methods, critical design things, how can we incorporate that into the work we do? 
how do you convince a company to necessarily embody these things and to buy into this concepts of ethical design, inclusive design, you know, all of the, you know, explore your biases, all of these different things that, you know, kill Richard and I sit there and make up random things, read books and be like, oh yeah, this would be interesting. Come, can we find a way how to apply that in our process? And yeah, we just necessarily just like have, you know, made things up. And obviously, you know, over maybe the last two years or so, I would say that our reputation has sort of, is it sold or sold? I can never get that word right. But our reputation has sort of um, increased or people are beginning to recognise our work and our commissions are so completely different from... Mm. That, must, that must be great to have the variety of, of briefs and commissions. Yeah, but you're still always trying to figure out like what's your position in or like who's yeah. the right clients or who's the right you know, um, the the businessy side of stuff, you know, who's the right client, who's the client that necessarily will necessarily buy your services, you know, um, you know, we've gone up for some projects and, you know, we haven't necessarily got them because yeah. some of those projects may be tenders and like you're right in tenders. But one of the things we know is that if you put us in a room with you, you know, we would give you a level of excitement that you probably haven't felt from a lot of people or and so you've always got to find, okay, what's the best channels to communicate about your work and the best channels to sell your work in order for you to get more work in mm. order to continue saying, I make stuff. So that's kind of mm. like, you know, one of the things you have to spend time doing on a day-to-day premise. Uh, what, uh, something I think is really interesting is, um, is the sort of um, openness of the solution that you might suggest. Mm. So... Uh, you know, if you're a painter, you've got a canvas. Yeah. Uh, if you're um, a writer, you have a blank page. Yeah, so. Um But the just looking through the stuff that you've done on the Kamuzi website. Yeah. It, it seems like um, you could kind of come back with anything yeah, as a solution so. to the problem. And lim- limitations often um, aid the creative process. And I yeah, guess so. when the field is wide open, that must be quite a. How, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, so that's that blank canvas without borders so we have a five-step process on how we work uh the first process is called framing so when a you know a company comes with a brief you know sometimes the briefs are very ambiguous sometimes a brief could be how do we use ai in this particular way or how do we or you know for the bbc r&d team it was about how do we develop effective and novel ideas for you know um, Generation Z um, group and also women between particular ages and like the North of England it was like you know you get every brief is completely different every sure. brief uses massive big words you want something to be bold you want something to be imaginative you want yeah. something to be creative you want yeah. you, know, you get all of these particular words and so in that first step of the process what we're trying to do is really trying to understand the brief properly yeah. trying to understand the team that we're working with because our projects try to be very collaborative with the project team that's hired us to do the work try to also understand expectations what does failure look like what does success look like what does all the things which is a, a kill is perfect at that like that's like you know um He's like the OG at that, uh, uh, that facilitating those stuff. Who's that? Akil. So Akil, Akil founder. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he's more the strategic head. Um, yeah. The one who lives in my head. And like... Um, <laughs> right. uh, and yeah, so we, we sort of frame the brief. We, yeah. We get the, you know, the definitions right. Yeah. Um, we have the next step, which is called Immerse. And so with a lot of our projects, because... We're sort of creating things that don't necessarily exist half of the time. Some projects, yeah. you know, we can't, we get a brief... You've got like two weeks to deliver this brief and you create something. But yeah. we try to like immerse ourselves very much. And you know, if you gave us a brief and you said, I want you to create something for the area of Paddington and stuff like that, we would immerse ourselves in the area of Paddington, try to understand what Paddington is like, you know. Um, try to find out, you know, find out people's attitudes, people's viewpoints of Paddington, people's stories about Paddington, you know, people's frustrations about Paddington and use that as a stimulus for ideation so we have a third stage which is called unifying and we try to like put all these insights together and we like you know create patterns and then we use this patterns as a stimulus for our ideation and then our next and then our fourth stage is called concept and then we spend a lot of time engaging in like mass ideation workshops um, using loads of ideation techniques some we've created ourselves some we've borrowed from other places 
and we just idea idea and then we narrow it down based on some of the things we had identified in framing and also perhaps particular design principles that we may have on our project then the last stage is my favorite stage which is make stuff and we make um and we you know engage in rapid prototyping you know depending on the project you might have like 10 ideas and then you try to like create like concepts of maybe six or five of those ideas you test them out you see if people like them you narrow it down to like maybe three and then you know you sort of provide recommendations mm. plus prototypes that have been built and made for people to move forward but that every project's completely different and some projects have different outcomes and projects are like we need to create a prototype or something that actually needs to be live and people need to try it out and yeah. no project is so at times can never be the same so it's very but that's what we always try to do in our projects yeah. is try that's to very interesting. and uh, Silicon Valley has um, uh, and the, the the digital arena has a particular sort of mm. particular ways of doing creativity don't they yeah. process so prototyping is a, is a big deal in my background in design and branding the client will buy the concept mm. and then you then when it's bought you execute yeah, and you're so. heading to one execution yeah so. um, but you're working on creating rapid prototypes yeah. that you can test immediately take learning froms and, and keep going yeah keep going process. yeah because I think it's like a, I would say that a prototype is worth a thousand presentations and a thousand reports mm. um, but yeah that was the way I was kind of thought and it was to engage in rapid prototyping engage in making stuff I think it's for me most of the time it's also about you know whatever I'm creating putting that in front of people and seeing how people react to it and learning from people's you know instead of making assumptions and stuff yeah you know like you know so prototyping maybe from a corporate perspective or a corporate you know organization is trying to explore technology they've never used before you know sometimes the safest bet is to create some sort of prototype version yeah. that they can just try it just try it and implement and then see yeah. from there if they're worthwhile uh i mentioned uh, you know a theme of some of the projects you've worked on is is, is kind of making a uh, a beneficial difference yeah, to the world, but another one is um, is dealing with inherent bias, mm. and I think a lot of people assume that computer systems are somehow kind of objective. You understand? Uh, uh, but you recognise that there is often yeah, a lot of bias built into systems, and you have done projects with Kamuzi to try and rectify that. Yeah, understand? Um, so, I initially explored as part of my master's dissertation. Uh, my master's dissertation was, was um, titled Mapping Ethical Futures with Artificial Intelligence. And the areas in concern that I explored was racial and gender bias. Um, racial bias, the example was looking at predictive policing systems in, the, in Florida, where um, the court of Florida had necessarily um, acquired a, a software which was about risk assessment to sort of identify people who are, who are more likely to reoffend. Yeah. Um, one of the issues about the way, so, so, so from a so from an algorithm perspective, algorithms is a set of instructions that requires an input to make an output. Yeah. That's like non-technical term of explaining it. It's instructions that take an input and create an output. In this case of this predictive policing software, the import was a survey. So if you got arrested, you'd be given the survey. The survey has many questions like how many people have gone to prison and how many people, um, has your mum and dad ever been divorced? It would you like loads of different questions. And so what happens is after that, you put the survey results into this software. And like I said about the algorithm, you've given it a set of instructions. You've given it input and it has a set of instructions and its instructions is to somehow identify who's more risky or who's more risky, who's more likely to offend, sorry, than, you know, based on the server results. And so the outputs and the issue was with the outputs. The outputs was maybe identifying black offenders to be more likely to offend the white offenders when the white offenders had the higher criminal record. So you might have somebody has like who's stolen like he stole a bike for example yeah. compared to somebody who's like done like I don't know triple assault some serious stuff and then the person who stole the bike was most likely to reoffend than or seemed more likely to reoffend than the person who had had like the larger criminal record and so just started this whole conversation about using technology in these spaces and yeah. necessarily about you know the, A the survey design is really terrible 
Yeah. You know, the survey design, you know, even though race wasn't taken into consideration, but you can look at some of the social studies or some of the stereotypical things that happen around us and how that sort of reflects, you know, and how we live. And so it was more like questioning technology's role in like mm. particular places and, you know, um, and also like identifying what role, where should technology be like, what? Okay, cool. Hold up, stop. We don't need it here. And what parts should technology play? You know, and mm. so those are a lot of the conversations I was exploring. Um, I explored gender bias, and that was also looking at how. From one example is how you know, um, with the sort of voice assistants that we have today, um, you know, they tend to be given feminine names and feminine personalities, and you know, they are companies. Siri, Siri Alexa, Cortana, Cortana, and it's quite a lot of bots. You might have like feminine names and stuff like that and there was a particular sort of um, study by like Leah Fessler at Quartz who explored if you were to speak to these um, devices in like flirtatious manner how would they respond to it and from the sort of study it shows the results that at the time none of these um, personal assistants necessarily would respond in the way that would maybe deter flirtatious manner so if we called it a slurp it would just be like, oh, thank you, or it'd be like 30 signs you're slut. If you said stuff like, I want to have sex with you, it wouldn't necessarily like have a deterrent to that message. And um, sometimes people think of that and say, okay, that's a small thing, it's just a bot. However, you've got to look at it from a, from a perspective of objectification of women in reality, and also how that objectification of women gets translated into how we treat mm. this device. Even though it's necessary as a device, You've given it a human personality, you've given it a human voice that disrupts our distortion of what reality and technology is. And so I kind of like spend a lot of time exploring those things and like mm. doing the stuff there. Yeah. There's another example that I read uh, on, uh, on your website or something you'd written of a, of a tech company that received thousands and thousands of job applications. So they built an algorithm to help them filter these applications. But up until that point, most of the employees were male. Yeah. Historically, that's who'd worked in tech. Yeah. So the algorithm determined that a male would make a better employee yeah. than a woman. So that inherent bias is replicated by the yeah. algorithm. But that, you know, but you don't, you can't necessarily blame the algorithm for that, because the algorithm is the set of instructions. Yeah, sure. You've got to blame you got to look at the data sets. Yeah, when, yeah. I, when I do this work, I always say it's about the data sets rather than the algorithm because the algorithms are instructions, so algorithms are not biased. Mm. You know, the data is biased and the data is the input that feeds the algorithm. And so it's about creating new data sets, generating new data sets, you know, changing the way. Like those are where you can, mm. I would say, reduce the limit of bias. Some people think you can remove certain information and that completely solves bias. That doesn't really solve bias. In your example of recruitment, you could say, okay, we're going to have blind hiring, hire somebody, uh, you know, hire a black queer woman, but put in an organization that doesn't have accommodation, that doesn't accommodate her, that your non biased hiring software is bloody pointless so yeah yeah so yeah there's loads of things to look more beyond like just oh let's just remove this thing and stuff like that yeah um let's t i'm really interested to talk to you a bit about machine learning and okay. ai and because yeah. uh, i i think uh, its relation with creativity is is, is particularly important these yeah, days right. so you you're lots of people have got different definitions for ai but your definition is the art of how to make computers do things at which humans are currently better cool i have no idea where you even <laughs> said that online but yeah I, i've been using that definition for a while you know that i say from 19 i would describe the story of the there's a summer proposal which i was written in 1958 and it was about a bunch of mathematicians who had this obsession about how do you replicate the human brain and put that in a computer? Yeah. Me, um, and that was the whole term artificial intelligence. And so yeah. they had broken this down into like seven different things or what artificial intelligence should have. Yeah. One of them is randomness and creativity because from a computational perspective, computers are taught to be logical, orderly. They have this thinking, you give it an instruction, it works it as logic. It's mm. why when you look at those like a machine beats human at chess or golf it makes sense because the computer is trained to be logical yes you know where we as humans we are irrational beings we all 
Yeah. You know, our emotions could be like, okay, I, I believe in myself, I can take this, you know, and that, you know, a computer is very orderly. However, yeah. one of the terms was about how do you, if you were to necessarily make a computer act creative, a computer has to act in a level of randomness. Yes. So I've been really interested in um, AI and creativity and that sort of um, space for where, uh, mostly around how does AI assist humans in the creative process. Right. That's kind of the type of stuff that I'm looking at. It's rather than computers being creative by itself. Yeah. So I, there, there are. I, I teach workshops to yeah. advertising creatives and designers, and there are already programs that write copy, and there are mm. there are programs that have written uh, movies and yeah. commercials, and when I show these professionals some of these things you know you can see they're, they're immediately you know, the brains start going and, and they start thinking shit is this the end of my job mm. and my response to that is it's not the end of your job if you continue to push boundaries so my understanding which is not as acute as, as yours is that um, machine learning is based on deriving patterns from things that have been done before yeah and the very best examples of creativity in whatever field are those that do something for the first time or yeah. those that put together things that haven't previously put together yeah and so i think if you make work which is derivative yourself or consistent with the conventions then sooner or later a computer is going to be able to do it as good as you but the yeah, truly yeah. truly original works of creativity will forever remain out of a computer's reach yeah I think that's that's the whole thing of like you know I literally just taught a whole class today on, um, on you know and my module's computation features and artificial intelligence and I got them to read a paper on man-computer symbiosis which was written in 1960 but it was about um, somebody having this obsession with the symbiotic relationship between man and computer and that computers would suppress human um, knowledge and I've always been interested in why people have this obsession of that mm. and I'm like man created computer human created computers and um, like I don't necessarily and I think you know um, I agree with you that you know um, this is also maybe the question of capitalism and the question of stuff of like you know oh you've got somebody writing copy don't worry my program can do that but then, you know, what way does the program do it? Does the program do it? Because, you know, from a from an AI perspective in the creative process, what's the purpose? Is it the data crunching? Does is it good at like could you use a program to necessarily you know, if I have a particular theme but I need some ideation, could I use a program to sort of explore crunch all this information of all the different copies from all the different campaigns and present it to me in a tangible way that I can understand, maybe using that for my further ideation. Or maybe it allows me now as a copywriter to maybe, instead of me spending time writing copy, it maybe, maybe enhances me to be more conceptual or, you know, so you've got to also think about with these benefits of these new technologies, mm -hmm. how to just op mm -hmm. open up the copywriter mm -hmm. to necessarily engage in a new way of thinking. So, so not, not necessarily seeing the two as sort of mutually exclusive. No, I, yeah. I never, that's, my whole work is, my whole purpose, some of the things I'm exploring now, which are not out just yet, is about the two machine and human coming together. So yeah. human being in the front and machine being this assistive tool. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I was explaining to some of my students today because they were like, you know, we don't need computers. Uh, one, you know, one of my students was like that. And I explained that, that for majority since, you know, we've been, I don't know, exploring philosophy and stuff, um, you know, Aristotle, Socrates and recorded philosophy that we do have even when the pen was used for writing that cause that had an issue I can't remember who I always get it wrong it was either Socrates or Aristotle or Plato somebody complained about the pen <laughs> being a tool to write because at the time philosophers spoke yeah. didn't write things yeah and then, I think so Socrates never wrote anything yeah, down so I think so. it's Socrates yeah. that necessarily complained about when Aristotle started writing somebody that came yeah. Whoever got taught by Socrates, somebody Plato said, Plato, wrote his stuff down. Plato, yeah. oh yeah, yes, yeah. So I'm now going to, yeah. So yeah. Plato started writing and Socrates yeah. had an issue okay. with that. Okay. And um, because he thought that would take away yes. everything from the stuff. Or if yeah. you think of, you know, photography, yeah. you know, when that came in, you know, painters may have thought photography democratised access to yeah. creativity where initially we talked about Da Vinci earlier, 
to live a life of Da Vinci, you had to be in good books, good connections, good this, good that. And so there is always a democratization of access when it comes to new technology. I think one of the things that's maybe scary of a tool like artificial intelligence or machine learning, all these things is because it's the obsession of trying to make machines do things that humans do, create this conflict yeah. of, you know, what is our role as humans in the world of machines? And I'm like, if we are having to think in that way, then we've like messed up really bad. And yeah. so that's why I'm very much like humans should be at the front. Yeah. Machines should assist human or machine and human. Because most of the time from a human-computer interaction standpoint, they tend to focus on either you either exploit human capabilities or machine capabilities versus each other. Yeah. And so I'm very interested about the sort of symbiosis relationship where human, yeah. maybe machine can help human further enhance yeah. themselves further. So that's kind of like the stuff I'm interested in, but yes. not like a separation yeah. and of, of, yeah. of stuff. Can you give an example of that, do you think? A, a, a sort of a scenario where there has been that sort of interaction between human and computer for positive ends? That's a good question. A very good question. You got me at like this drain time, so I've got to stop <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I've got to like think in my head. It's a good question you ask because I think a lot of the things are still very speculative. Yeah. Or we're still very much exploring these things. So I know that I'm exploring this in my work right now. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting thing is like there's this really interesting project called Nsynth Super, okay, which is created by Google Creative Lab, and what it does is that it's a synthesizer that generates new sounds with machine learning. But that necessarily doesn't take, if you're a producer or a musician, that doesn't necessarily take you your power away as a musician. Right. What it does, what it's doing then is assisting, it's, it's actually enhancing and helping you to create new sounds that people haven't heard. And for me, I'd be like, you know, somebody who likes making music, if I can make a new sound that nobody people haven't heard or new sounds that can shape I don't know my bank account for the next five years ten years says, oh yeah this person created this sound you know that's that type of stuff so I think it's like I think that's one of the things I, I, sh I always bring up when I'm talking about AI and creativity is more like where does AI support where does AI support in the creative process and what mm -hmm. creators will be able to benefit mm -hmm. from it mm -hmm. and that type of stuff so yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very speculative space and there's um there's increasing, maybe in the last three, four years, you know, a lot of literature that's been written on this, or you've got more artists who are exploring this stuff, you've got more creators exploring these things, you have um, maybe some funding pools, mostly in the States, or like opportunities exploring this stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's still very speculative, and it's still very interesting to see what the yeah. outcome comes with. But I know that it's something that I'm definitely teaching my students to explore and mm -hmm. stuff like that and also in my practice yeah. to explore as well that's good because as I say I think it's, um, it's it's a bit of a kick up the arse really to people yeah. who are making derivative work that uh, it, and, and so much of advertising is kind of based is, it's easy based on stuff that's gone before yes, and, and, and that kind of work is it, it is easily done by a machine I think because there's, there's one isn't, didn't they um, some American news organisation now uses um, uh, a machine to write sports reports okay so that there are um, endless sporting events at fairly lower league levels across the United States people want to read about them but it doesn't make financial sense to send a journalist the data is um, is inputted into a computer which can then piece together sentences um, and, and write a sports report but it's still very hard to imagine a time when a computer could ever write a 10,000 word feature in the New Yorker, for instance. Yeah, I understand. But I think, you know, um, it's a hard one because I always say this, like I was saying this as well earlier on today, that, we, you know, the conversation of automation is an interesting one that's pushed by this dystopian narrative that we tend to have of the world. And I'm like, you know, they are going to be people who, the people who suffer at the hands of automation tend to be the lower paid workers, you know, who necessarily, you know, are, you know, the cleaners and all these things, they necessarily will suffer the brunt most of automation. 
um, I think in the creative process, I think it it will cause like a disparity, it will cause like a disgruntment, it will cause a disagreement. And I think it's also important for us to redefine what what is creativity. You know, is creativity just constructing words together? Or is it necessarily like that report? You know, computers can are logical, so they can construct a sentence together. But does that sentence really convey emotion? Does that sentence really do those things where, oh, wow, the way they've broken this down to me is so different? You know, the computers don't understand context. Mm. They can make patterns. Mm. So they can study how other articles have been written and replicate that mm. and group those together given the data. That's what they can do. But that true thing that makes a journalist a journalist computer can never do that mm. what makes a journalist what makes that investigative journalist mm. you know it's not a computer who's going to go out their way to investigate maybe that journalist now has to do more than what they've done before but it maybe frees them up to actually spend less time writing more time being a journalist being explorator being explorative and like okay I explore I put my notes into this machine and this machine generates the content I can necessarily then review the content and I can necessarily like edit it and like improve it and stuff like that I'm not a tech solutionist by the way I'm saying this and I sound very much like a tech solutionist I do not believe in tech solutionism in any way shape or form but I'm you know but one of the things I'm trying to do is be aware that you know there are organisations who are interested in technologies and want to implement them into the workplace Mm. but I think it's also trying to make sure that the technologies only assist humans rather than replace humans Mm. that's not something that I'm interested in nor is that something I'd want to work on. So I'm curious, um, for somebody like you who's in their 20s yeah. at the moment, kind of at the uh, the early stages of their career, who's intimately sort of plugged into what's going on and with a with a strong conscience and a desire to to, to make our, our, our world a better place, it, it can, can tech sort out the mess that we're in at the moment? No. No, that's a human thing. Tech is just a tool. It's an enabler. It doesn't really do anything else. You still, it's, but it's a human thing. I always say that, like, tech is never a solution. So I never get hired to make a solution. So I, I know you said solutions to problem solving. I don't tend to build solutions. I tend to build recommendations. I say, okay, we can do these things. However, these are the things we need to go on here. You know, these are the things we probably need to implement here. You know, we've got some projects where the brief was obsessedly all about technology and we were like and from the first day I read the brief I was like, I'm not building it like right. if you know if it's just like tech solution and then we, we go in there and we present and in our first presentation we say technology is just a channel not the solution yeah you know and, and then we try to say it's also important to have human aspects and things like that which maybe disrupts somebody's vision of oh, I'm going to make this really savvy technology solution oh, look at me but you know I don't think tech can solve None of this stuff. Humans. Humans. Yeah. And how do you feel about uh, the future yourself at the moment? Um, I think, you know, obviously the conversation of climate change is something that's been increasing this year. I feel like every year has a particular theme and I feel like climate change has now even got a stronger theme. Um, I think it's important to necessarily look at how we, from a you know design perspective, how we are designing things and, you know, from a, not only just a, a physical product design perspective, but it's a you know, system design, service design, you know, um, you know, maybe breaking out of this user-centered design aspect and more looking at more communities and how we can study and we can learn from communities and how we can, especially indigenous communities who are more community focused and rather than us here, we're very individually focused. Mm. How do we necessarily really try to design a resilient community that can survive the effects of climate change? You know, um, it's really interesting when I read that, you know, in the, in the last 100 years, we've sort of heated up the planet way faster than the rest of the years have done. But it's obviously increased the rise of consumerism, the rise of plastic, the rise of population, all these different combinations have created these things. So I think it's more about now us building a resilience future and, you know, one that also is, you know, protects the 99% of the world who necessarily will be deeply affected by this. Mm. So in terms of the future, I initially have no idea, um, you know, where, where that's heading to and where that's going to. But I think it's important for us to sow the seeds and hope, and hope that the seeds are on fertile ground and hope that they germinate and that's kind of like these things you know that I'm doing here obviously this is still the beginning like you said 
beginning or the early steps. Um, you know, and there's still a long time to go in my practice, and I know that with time, I will be exploring different things, and mm. hopefully, I can, you know, the same energy I have now can be poured into them. Yeah. Yes or no? I, I, I think, uh, from my own perspective, um, it's really interesting that you talk about community, because mm. I think maybe that's that's one of the biggest issues we face mm. today is, is an increasing division between groups and between individuals. Yeah, uh, and it's very hard for us to solve our problems when we're not together. Yeah, I'm But I think division has been there throughout human uh, history, though. So it's something that I've seen when I read. Division has always been there. You know, I, I'm really interested to understand the psychology, psychological cool relationship with division and trauma and all these things there because it's like a lot of like deeper stuff which causes this division um, and um, you know the concept of scarcity if you think of Brexit a lot of immigration crisis a lot of these things where you're having people who are suffering in this in, in their countries necessarily trying to come for a better life but a country pushes them out and that's on the notion of scarcity you know scarcity yeah. is drives the economic system that we have today and scarcity drives a lot of things you know fast fashion is based on the concept of scarcity again yeah, now it doesn't come back we have a luxury fashion design industry which is all mm. about you know only a lot, you know all of these we have all these structures that are part of everyday life and we accept it but they cause those problems if we maybe created a a, a, a economy uh, economic system that doesn't believe in the concept of scarcity but believes in the concept of abundance and when that's abundance means abundance in community abundance and loads of different things you know maybe that can help but you know um division has been there for a long time since the biblical story of the mm. tower of babel so yeah yeah you know it's a hard one. It's a hard yeah. one, but community yeah. is definitely something that I'm interested yeah. in. I watched the um, the Netflix documentary about um, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Have you have you seen that? No, I haven't watched it. I'm such a shambles. I downloaded it and I didn't watch it. Yeah, no, that's um, uh, and what I'd not really appreciated, um, but I think you do from some of the things that I've read was was about the the way our data is used. Yeah, and the the lack of privacy we now have, yes, and how um, the, uh, the 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 divisions which enabled Brexit yes, were perpetuated by using data, yes, using sir. our data, which we'd we'd freely yeah, and continue it. to freely give up. And then the concept of privacy is very interesting. I'm a I'm a I critique privacy. And I say that privacy is a very individual con- is a very individual concept which is you know obsessed in the Western world. I see if you go to indigenous communities or you know villages in like different parts of Africa, um, especially where I come from, you know I have Nigerian her- heritage, uh, but I'm you know born and raised there. Um, is that you can live in a village and somebody can know the doors are open. You know, or you can know that this person is doing this naughty thing with that person. You know, you might have a secret that might be your family secret. You're like, don't speak about this, it's our family secret. But in terms of this aspect of, you know, fear of of privacy, it doesn't exist. But, you know, in this Western, in a, in more, when you come to more Western world, we obsess about things of privacy and stuff like that. So for me, I'm like, is it the issue, is it privacy or is it issue about trust or is it fear? Mm. And how... You know, because the question is always like, if Facebook has said to people, hey, we're using your data for this with people, would agree with it? Who knows? We have no idea. But I think it's like, you know, um, it's, it's it's about like, you know, there's different type of stuff around data. People want to help people educate themselves about, educate people about data, you know, or people being able to understand their data much better. But I think, I, I believe in the concept that people should have autonomy and control over their data, you know, but one of the issues, the first issue a lot of times is data policies and terms and conditions are like 50, 60 pages long. And we, we yeah. all know that nobody reads this stuff. Yeah. And so the question is, is how do we redesign those things? How do we redesign those things where people can yeah. read and people can, and people can read and have some sort of informative ability to say, you know what, I don't want my data to be used in that type of way. You know, yeah. I, because I, you know, I'm aware and I am conscious, I'm able to necessarily 
be strict of how my data is being used. Yeah. But, you know, for example, I would say this, if you were to use a search engine that doesn't take data on you versus a search engine that takes data on you, you probably always want to fly back to the search engine that takes data on you because it necessarily knows who you are. It can personalize the information. Mm. It knows your location. This, so it's like, I would say that what's the price that we are willing to pay yeah. for data but it's really interesting because I'm seeing you know there's uh, you know, I know people that try to explore relationships on how we own our data and then we can sort of repurpose and resell it back to organisations and brands and so that we can benefit from it so it's, it's a very hard it's a very hard thing because you've got to how do you build new economic or new economic models that necessarily hmm. um, and puts the person put the community at the centre and hmm. They say data is owned by the individual, not just generated, but owned. Yes. So it, it feels like it feels like one of the big questions, I think, hmm. of our times. And I guess because we um, are relatively early on in the story of yeah. of the internet and our data and yes, social right. media, that we've 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 not worked it out quite yet. Um, so I look to you, Alex, to sort that out over the next few years. <laughs> so we we should wrap up because you're you've got a busy day. Um, I read also when I was doing my research that you'd like to retire at 45, live on an island and write books. <laughs> I don't remember where half of the stuff I said still. Good so I, I wondered, um, I, I, I'd like to finish with two questions. Okay. The first one is what kind of books would those be? And in the unlikely event of, the, of you not retiring at 45 and living on an island, what would you like to be doing? Um, why do I like books? Maybe you know, I think initially it was just the ability to write, and like I said, I've talked about film direction and storytelling and things like that, and like you know, being able to sort of just explore things and put that in a tangible form where people can access that and start conversations and stuff. So I always thought books, films, those type of storytelling mediums necessarily are great tangible things to maybe write stuff maybe I can do it now if I had time but I feel it's like oh the feeling of just sitting there and writing um, 45 I don't know why I put that age but I thought you were 45 um, living on an island why is that is because I really like being by sea um, yeah. so being by sea which probably most of us do like but you know being by the ocean is quite nice um, I'm traditionally like grounded so being by ocean is like very nice and being in the city I see the city is very much a place that I have to make it and leave and you know this yourself you don't live in London so yeah. you know you've, you, you've, you've found a way how to make some sort of detachment away from London work even though it means it can be stressful at times and stuff like that yeah. but I think it was just that desire of like okay being in the city big city living this fast 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 life it's not as fast as New York but fast 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 life how can I separate and for me Everything for me always in my head goes to like island, ocean, and water. Bit of escape. So if I wasn't on an island and ocean by water, um, let me let me rephrase it. So, okay, cool. Because I, I like the idea of you being on your island writing books. So let's preserve that. Let's assume that's going to happen. Before you set sail for the island, what would you like to have achieved? Um, so there's always like things that I stick in my on our walls, like financial freedom and creative freedom. Creative freedom is just a space to create things, and that's why I talk about I make stuff. Financial freedom isn't maybe for me necessarily like I need to have like wallops of money and all these things. It's just the thing of like, and it's interesting when I bring up financial freedom because it even challenges me. And you know, this is where they still the you know you're trying to I don't know detach from the from a capitalistic standpoint and mindset. But I mean, financial freedom was just necessarily being able to you know, exist and do the things I want to do without having to fear about money. But also making sure that you set up your future generations to have a, you know, a better path and that type of stuff. But it's really interesting, this whole notion of capitalism and this notion of life where you like, make money and that's your success mm. metric. So, you know, I'm still trying to like define what this stuff mean, but it's like financial freedom and creative freedom are like the two things um, I do, you know, care about. But it's very interesting when I, when, I, when I say it out loud and, you know, when, the more I know, the more I understand. And, yes, yeah, it's, it's a very conflicting thing for me. So I'm still on that journey of, like, understanding stuff better. 
Well, it's been really fascinating to talk to you. I think the work that you're doing is uh, extremely interesting and um, I very much like the principles that you, you seem to live and work by. So, um, so thanks very much for taking part in this uh, episode of The Wind Thieved Hat. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. Thank you. Nice one. Thanks. So there we are. Hope you enjoyed that. Alex has a personal website, lexmakesthings.fun, which is really worth checking out, especially if you're still a little mystified about chatbots. And our conversation inspired me to write an article on creativity and AI, which you can read on my blog at richardholman.com. Thanks very much for listening. It's always lovely to have you here. Until next time, goodbye.